0: Our reading is taken from Luke seven, we'll start in verse 36 and read down through the end of the chapter, Luke seven, 36 to the end of the chapter. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisees house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her, with her tears, and kept wiping them with, her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man, speaking of Christ, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, let's pray. Our father, we thank you for Giving us your word that unveils the truth about who you are and who we are, that explains the true nature of a relationship with you and the kind of people that you sent your son to rescue. It is so counterintuitive to what we would have thought. It's so different. It's in so many ways, God. Christianity is opposite of what we would have written down had we been in charge of designing a religion around a holy, all-powerful, all-knowing God. To think that the God-man, with all the fullness of the deity, with all that is true of the divine nature inhabiting His humanity, that He would look on someone whose sins truly were many, and He loves her and forgives her, and that forgiveness made visible in her life through her gratitude. God we thank you that you have sought out the unclean and not the clean, that Christ is a physician, and so he came to deal with sick and not with people who think they're well. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes. We know that the Pharisee had sin as well and his sin was great, but he sees none of it. Or maybe like us, he feels that he just needed a little help. And so his love for you is so small. He loves only himself. If you were a God that only reached out your hand and gave a little help to those who almost could live the Christian life. but but weren't quite strong enough, God, we would have been thrilled. We would would have all signed up for your religion, but you are a God that loves the unlovely, and you are a God who crucified his son because no one that you love here could in any way erase the stain of their shame. You are a God that had to crush our enemy because we couldn't, and you had to conquer us because we didn't want you, and that is a religion that we find humiliating, but you have opened so many eyes and you have softened hearts and you have freed us from the chains of deceit and our pride. And so many here and across this world this morning do know you now and like this woman know what it is to have peace with you so we thank you and we pray that the great work of mercy which was begun so long ago and has spread to every corner of the globe and to every town and city through every generation god don't forget us we need you greatly indescribably immeasurably god So even though we often fail to see it, you don't. So will you in kindness and for the glory of your son so that he would would receive the reward of his suffering, would you work and meet us and do all within us necessary so that our hearts would give you a complete and glad response. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are returning to the theme that we've been looking at for some time. What is it to follow this Christ? If it's been so long that we started the theme, you can easily be forgiven for not kind of not wondering, okay, so where are we in it? This is actually a sub theme and the bigger theme and the bigger theme was started quite a long time ago when we looked at the the understanding or viewing the glory of Christ in his person and in his labors, particularly using Matthew, Mark and Luke. But as we moved through those passages after the Sermon on the Mount, after the the chapters of Um, that that demonstrated the sufficiency of Christ to heal any of our soul's diseases. Matthew 8 and 9 and 10. Well, in chapter 10, we begin to see a lot of talk about following. And so we have been talking about the, the realities that have to be a part of our really following Jesus Christ, of being discipled by Christ, so apprenticed to Christ, not just sitting in a classroom, And writing down the teachings of Christ. I mean, that's wonderful. But that's not enough. And we're glad that's not enough. When we know this Jesus. Because we don't want a Christianity. That is simply fine, beautiful, sublime concepts. That fit together perfectly. And then we kind of use them as a decorative thing on the shelf of our life. We want to know that he will let us follow him, that we could hold fellowship with him in his word, by his spirit, for his enduring honor. And for that, we've talked about a lot of different aspects, but we've come down in the last weeks to considering the the particular path that Christ walked. And we use the illustration of a map. Christ had a very definite map, the moral law of God. What pleased his father, he did. What displeased his father, he perfectly avoided. In his thoughts and attitudes, his motivation, his responses to people, the way he talked, the way he ate, slept, dressed, spent money, everything. And so when we think of following Jesus Christ, we're not merely talking about following his teachings, but observing his pattern and imitating it. And while the Gospels give us so much wonderful information, there are other places that give us a not a direct, but we could call it a a reflected look at Christ. And one of those places is is the Ten Commandments or the law of God, the moral law. We're not following Jesus Christ in the way that he died for sinners or was raised or rules over everything uh, from the throne at the right hand of the father. We're not feeding thousands miraculously, and we're not even walking around in the in the dusty streets of Jerusalem. But we are with hearts toward our God, depending on him, the one who has begun our salvation to continue to supply everything we need to know and to love and to do his good will, while we're depending on him and our faces toward our Savior, there is an open book in our hand, or there is a map, and that map is the same map Christ had. It's a map that's ancient and been well used by every believer since us, and it's been handed to us. It's not exactly the same as Christ had. If you think about the Old Testament, we also have the New Testament. So in the illustration, I know it's imperfect, but I tend to think, well, so it's the same map. What's right and what's wrong hasn't changed. But we have all around the perimeter of the map, you know, all around the path that we're walking. We have these notes that Christ writes. So we have the teachings of Christ. We, we have the notes from the apostles. That fill in the cracks and you know, expand on our understanding in a way that the new covenant does, and help us to understand how is it that we walk that path in 2023 together, having been saved by grace. Well, that brings us to this sweet request that we find frequently in the scriptures, um, and it can be summed up like this: Teach us your commands. We find believers pleading with God throughout the Bible. We're going to look at a few examples from Psalm 119. But I want us to think about this question. What is it that makes a a man or a woman or a young person who has been through the scriptures declared uh, as they've embraced Christ? They have been declared right with God. Their shame and their guilt has been removed And their lack of righteousness has been supplied by Christ's obedience. So all our shame placed on someone else and taken out of the way so that there's no impediment for the love of God to reach me and for us to come near to him in peace. And having been reconciled to God, we remain reconciled to God because it's not up to us to keep ourselves beautiful in the eyes of God Because He has clothed us with the righteousness of His Son. And so in our position, in our standing with God, there is this unalterable completeness. So that Paul says things like, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. None at all. Or where Paul says, at the end, you will be presented blameless. Jude says the same thing. When a person has been declared debt-free and at peace with the king, what is it that makes that person, as they're, in a sense, leaving the courtroom of the king and going into the family room, if you remember Andrew Davis's phrase, of the king? So I'm leaving the courtroom, I'm declared right, but I'm being adopted into his family. What makes a person, in being adopted into the family, to turn to that same king, that judge who has declared you right with him, what makes you turn to him and say, will you please teach me your commands? I want to obey. Christianity is the kind of religion that just doesn't make sense to those people who have, in a sense, never met Christ. So they may know nothing of the work of Jesus and they Look at the basic teachings of Christianity and they say, I just don't get it. But then, of course, there are people that go to church regularly and they hear the Bible all the time. And maybe they even study the Bible. Maybe, like me, they preached from the Bible before they knew Christ. And all they have in religion is just the form. You know, you've got rules and you've got some concepts, but it doesn't have at the center of it... The living God. Your life has never been turned inside out. You've never been wrecked by Christ. Now, that's my language for it. But what Paul says in Romans 7, he just says, I thought I was a great guy. That's still John's word. You know that. Okay. Paul thinks he's a great guy. Paul thinks he keeps the word. He's blameless. And then he said, but God's law came and exposed him and killed him. So it killed Paul's good impressions of himself. It killed Paul's reputation. It killed Paul's hopes as a Pharisee. All that you've been doing. It's all just a form of religion, Paul. Look at your heart. Look at one area of the heart, covetousness. And the law shines on one spot of, the, of, of Saul of Tarsus' heart. And exposes him as a fraud. And destroys all his religion. And then, of course... He meets Christ, and he's made alive, and something new is born, something new is created. There's a spiritual resurrection. If that isn't your religion, when you look at Christianity and you see the teachings, there, there are these there are paradoxes, uh, you know, apparent contradictions and mysteries, and you think, I, I don't know what to do with this, and generally... People slip into choosing one thing or another that makes sense to them. Something that they like about Christianity and they grab hold of part of it and not having a living God at work in them. They can't imagine that all of it could fit together. And then the churches they're a part of tend to to drift. Taking maybe one part of the Bible they like and then they end up in error. One of those areas is that mysterious connection between the law of God and the grace of God or the authority of God and the freedom of the Christian. How can justification, which has removed my shame and given me a perfect and full righteousness in the eyes of God because I am in Christ, and so that is shared with me, my mediator. Chuck talked about it this morning. How can that declaration of no condemnation for everyone who's in Christ, how can that not lead to carelessness with regard to keeping God's commands? I tried to think in my mind, how is it that we get so confused? And so I, I was thinking of a few illustrations. It just appears to make sense That if the holy God who gave a holy law, which we broke and that law was offended at us, so to speak, and the justice of God was against us. And if that law has been satisfied by the death. So he takes the curse, the death of Christ, the obedience of Christ, he satisfies the law and places that on our account. Then it just seems to make sense that the law must not have much to do with the Christian. Think of this illustration. If you are a person who is in terrible debt and you're about to lose your home and everything and you're trying, to, you're, you know, you're trying to explain to your family the bad news because they have no idea how bad it is and you're saying to your wife and children, we're about to be homeless because of my decisions and I'm so sorry, but there's nothing I can do about it. I've tried everything. And then you receive word that your debt has been fully paid by someone else Well, would you still go to the bank and bring your monthly payment? It's paid. And so we think, well, that's kind of like it is with the law. Christ satisfied it. So why would I go back and bring any extra payments? Or you think of sin as a disease, the cancer that was exposed and no hope was given to you, but you found a doctor and his procedure cured you. It's all gone. Would you continue to show up weekly for more surgeries? Would you continue to go for more chemo? When you read Paul's writings, doesn't it look like the law of God was the old way of God dealing with this and the grace, the undeserved love of God is the new way of God dealing with this. It's almost like God, you know, had an attitude adjustment towards sinners and now law and grace are enemies irreconcilable, and there's no way they could be in the same room together or in the same heart together. So how can we say that following Jesus will involve obeying the written commands of God when law and grace are enemies? And that's how it feels. And it's not just people who have not been saved or who have not known the work of God in their heart, but it is also sometimes the true Christian, that when we look at these things, we can get confused. I've mentioned famous believers in the past who got confused here. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, looked around at his day. Baxter was a pastor in the 1600s in a city in England called Kidderminster. There's a giant statue of him there. There's not a whole lot of statues of Puritans. They weren't that popular. But Baxter was one of the rare Puritan ministers who experienced in his church under his ministry, what we would call real revival. When he first went to the city, the church was pretty much empty and the streets were full on Sunday. You know, it's everybody's day off. Back then you didn't get Saturday off. It's just Sunday. So if you're not a Christian, why would you show up at church? So the the town is enjoying its day off and God is not what they want. Baxter begins to preach God begins to move. Baxter begins to visit homes. He writes all about this. He begins to do catechism with families that know nothing about the Bible. And through God's use of Richard Baxter, there's a great revival. And at the end of his ministry, he said this. You could shoot a cannonball down the streets of our city on Sunday morning and nobody would be in danger because they were in church. But when Richard Baxter looked at the Puritan movement, he was concerned that there was a drift toward kind of a a hyper-Calvinistic antinomianism. Well, if it's all of grace, then maybe obedience is optional. And so he went to write a book to correct this abuse of the doctrine of justification by the work of Christ received through faith alone. As he researched... He came to a completely different, and I'm pretty convinced, erroneous new view. And he said, actually, the problem is not that the people are abusing the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Actually, our doctrine is wrong. There's no way to believe this, he said, without becoming careless. hundred years later, someone that was influenced by Baxter, who was not a Puritan, John Wesley, Wesley, of course, was kind of on the other side of the theological spectrum. But John Wesley believed that God had to work in you or you would never believe and repent. And John Wesley believed in holiness. As an old man, he used to love to tell people the whole reason that the evangelical revival, the the British version of the Great Awakening, the whole reason it happened was for holiness sake. That's what God was interested in. And that's what they were interested in first decade of the revival passes, John Wesley looks at it, and he starts to become concerned. Some of his preachers aren't quite as diligent as they were at the beginning. Wesley fasted twice a week, so did George Whitfield. They fasted twice a week the rest of their lives, praying for the work, not legalistically, but in a sense of need. And Wesley was a little legalistic in the way he would apply it. He would say, well, if you want to Preach for us, you're going to have to be like me. And so he gave them a lot of rules. Well, they're slipping. They're, they're drifting from Wesley's pattern. And John Wesley looks around and he comes up with a solution. He, or he comes up with something to blame. He says, well, my diagnosis is that it's this Calvinism. It's this reformed teaching. It's the teaching that Christ's life and death are both applied to a, a believer. That you are both washed and You are made right by the death and the righteousness of Christ. And John Wesley said, there's no way to believe that and not become slack with obedience. So he developed a view that was not unheard of before, but he made it very popular. It's still popular today among Methodists. And that is justification has two stages. Present justification. By faith alone. I trust what Christ did. Okay. But then from that point forward, because Christ's righteousness is never placed upon your account, you're just washed. In a sense, you must work in the kingdom. You must obey enough to kind of clothe yourself. And so, of course, there is this large option in Wesleyan teaching that you could lose your salvation justified here. But on the judgment day. You didn't do enough. You lose your justification. I remember preaching in Washington State in a Baptist church, and and you know so obviously most of the time we Baptists don't say, uh, well you could lose it. That's why we're not Methodists. That's why we're Baptists. So I was preaching, and a man in the church had just started attending, and he came up to me and said, "Don't you think that your beliefs will definitely lead to a life of sin?" Because you told people God has fully forgiven you through Jesus Christ, you know, when they embrace Christ. And I said, no, actually, I don't. And so I talked to him about John Wesley. By the way, John Wesley's views produced a lot of confusion and they produced a lot of religious debate with the other side that disagreed with him, But they did not produce a lot of enduring holiness. Eventually, Wesley said, well, the reason we're not very holy is because we need, we need to teach sinless perfection. So he added that. And again, it didn't work. Overreactions to the problems we see in religion do not cure the problems because the overreaction will be made up of a lot of error and lies and errors in religion do not fix us. It is only The truth that we have through Christ that has any power to change a life. Wrong teaching may look like it will fix us, and it never does. Well, thankfully, we don't have to slide over and say, well, let's fix the moral slide in our nation by by saying, well, we just need to give people more rules, biblical rules. And we don't need to react against that and say, whoa, why are you talking so much about the rules? So then we swing back over here and we say, actually, the only hope of our nation is just to talk about the cross. And the cross does away with rules. It makes obedience optional. So those errors which are out there, they don't have to be our errors. I don't think it's that complicated as we approach the law of God. We have so many examples in Scripture of how other believers approach the Word of God that I see no real reason for us to get confused. So, this morning I want us to look at these two things. First, why is it that every person on earth ought to come to the Word of God and say, teach me your commandments, whether you're a Christian or not? Why would they want to do that? And... Is there is there something about the work of Christ that makes us come to God and say, teach me your commandments in a way that no one else could ever say it, you know, with an earnestness? So anybody, anybody in the word of God, believer or not, the moral law of God, we've talked about this a lot. And so I know that you probably feel that I've repeated myself a lot. but It's purposeful. There's so much confusion on this. The moral law of God is a reflection of God's unchanging character. Things that he says, these are fundamentally right, and these are fundamentally wrong, are fundamentally right or wrong because of the God that made us. What kind of a God he is, is behind what kind of moral law there is. So I'm talking about the Ten Commandments where these are summed up. I'm not talking about, you know, the laws that were limited to Israel's um, political situation Or laws that were limited to Israel's worship situation. I'm not talking about which bird I bring on which day for which offering. Moral law. Adultery is wrong because of who he is, our God. And lying is wrong. And telling the truth is right because of who he is. So that doesn't change. Old Testament, New Testament, pre-cross, post-cross, God still is unchangeably good or pure or right, morally unstainable. And so the moral law doesn't shift. Second, because it is a picture of God's perfect character given to us, you know, through the prism of earthly morality. Like, well, this is right in a marriage and this is right in a business and this is right in church. And these are wrong things. God brings it down on a level we can see. Because he is our creator, every created being owes him obedience. It is not being a Christian that means you should obey. It is being a created being that means you should obey. So sometimes we tell ourselves this lie. Well, I'm not a Christian. And and so I can't obey. And therefore... Um, I I don't think that God would be very upset with me. I mean, he understands. I'm not in that kingdom. So I don't do any of those things. But when we talk about the fundamental right and wrong, that goes for everybody. If you are living and breathing on planet Earth, you are living and breathing because someone created you, fashioned you, sustains you with an undeserved kindness. And that person you will face... At the end of time. And you will give an answer. For why you did or did not. Take his word seriously. So I I, I want to give some reasons. That anybody ought to come to the ten commandments. On Sunday morning. Or during the week. And say. God. Teach me the ten commandments. Psalm 119 I mentioned. It has a lot of these. I'm going to limit us to three. Because this is. Not all we're going to talk about. Verse 68. If you have your Bible, look at Psalm 119, verse 68. Psalm 119 and verse 68. I've given you just a few, and they are in a particular order. Verse 68. You are good, the psalmist says to God, and do good, and then There's the request, teach me your statutes. So I want to give you a few that end with the same request. Teach me your statutes or teach me your commands or teach me your ways or your precepts. It doesn't matter which word we use for the law there. God, teach me your commands. But each one starts with a different reason. Why does he say, teach me? Verse 68, because he says God is good and he does good. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to say that. This is one of the most fundamental things about God. The word good can be used different ways. So be careful. We're not talking about something that is pleasing. It tasted good. Or we're not even talking about kindnesses like benevolence. Uh, you know, God will do good for us. We're talking about moral goodness. God, you are fundamentally good or Right or pure, the opposite of bad. You are unstained good. You are morally straight with no bending, no shadows in this perfect light. It is is the true and genuine character of the Creator. Only good. Always good. Good in His essence. It's who He is. He is goodness. Or he is righteousness or purity. And so his goodness is effortless. It's just who he is. Just like you and I are human without any effort. But he doesn't stop there. You do good. Again, morally right things. But goodness has different words for us when we think of different ways it reaches us. When the moral purity and the perfect righteousness of God comes to those situations where right and wrong is at stake and God acts we call that righteousness or we call his goodness justice but when God decides to supply the the when God decides to supply the life of the needy person we call that goodness compassion when God gives happiness again for those who deserve his wrath we call that goodness, mercy. When God gives good things to people that don't deserve any good things, we call that grace. When God is good toward those who provoke him continually, we call that patience. When God's moral perfection shows in the way he responds to what he says in his Bible, And he keeps his word. We call that truthfulness. And when God's moral perfection deals with the unrepentant sinner. And he chooses for it to be wrath. That's a form of goodness too. So when we look at that verse. Verse 68. God you are the only morally perfect being. And you do what is morally perfect. All the time. Any thinking person. Christian or not. Ought to say. Teach me your commandments. Let me give you another verse. Verse 12. Jump back. He's not just morally perfect and straight. Look at verse 12. It's one of my favorites of the 176 verses. Blessed are you, O God, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Again, same request, different reason. The blessed God we read in the New Testament. What does he mean? It doesn't just mean that he is right. It means that he is in himself. He is infinitely pleased. Happy. It's a bit of a shallow word, but I don't know a better one. He is satisfied. He is complete. And being that kind of a God, he is the source of that to everyone When he talks about blessing people, he gives from the overflow of his happiness, his completeness, his satisfaction, his pleasure in himself. He gives kindly to us and he makes others happy. Paul talks about this. Ephesians 1. Thanks be to God who has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So for the Christian, we can say every. Every type, every degree of spiritual happiness that would be for my good, he has given it to me in Christ. But he gives it because he is it. There is a God that is not just morally right and pure and does what's morally right and pure. There is a God who is morally right and pure and does what's right and pure. And he is also infinitely self-satisfied and happy And he gives happiness to people who don't deserve happiness. Look at another verse, verse 64. We see the blessings that come from God, who's the source of it all. And we say, will you teach me? Verse 64, another reason. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. So again, God... Will you teach us the Ten Commandments today? There's a lot of confusion. We could really use it. Why? Why do you want to know? Because the earth, because creation is full of the loving kindness of God or the mercies of God. But it is that strange Hebrew word. There's more than one word for mercy. It is the word that loving kindness or a perpetual mercy, steadfast love. It's a love or a mercy or a kindness that is coming to us through an agreement, a covenant, a contract. So the writer looks at the earth like any thinking person can, sees the sin and the ruin of sin, and realizes that we're living against the creator. And instead of us being snuffed out, he gets up and he breathes air and his heart works, his brain works, his body works, his children, they're healthy. Food is provided, time, and he realizes this whole place, it's just crammed full of the covenanted or contractual kindnesses of God. Do you remember the covenant with 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 uh, most? Sorry, I'm going to get it right soon with Noah. So he makes a covenant with Noah and he promises Noah and through Noah, all all creation. I will never again destroy this. Wicked humanity with a flood. Because God has plans of mercy that He will bring about. He will send His Son. He will die for the sinner. He will be raised for the sinner. He will rule for the sinner. He will gather to sinners. He will embrace those who come to Him through faith and repentance. He will do all the Father wants Him to do. And that's going to take time. And so this earth is going to last just as long as the father wants it to last to do all of his kindnesses. And you look at the earth and you see the sun rise again this morning and you think, why is the sun rising on a wicked earth again? Is it because God doesn't notice? Is it because God isn't powerful? And the answer is, it is because God has given loving kindness and all creation reflects it. So any thinking person would come to the Ten Commandments and say, will you teach me? I want to know. Well, those are some examples, but let's think of a few verses where the context for coming to the commandments is not the general kindness of God, but the distinguishing grace. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm not just saying the really, really good grace. Distinguishing grace. Love that God sends, And it is so good that it distinguishes you for the rest of your life. And people look at you and think, why? Why him? Why her? Why do they live differently? Why can they be happy even in the midst of some very difficult times? Why don't they throw their hands up and walk away from Christianity? I don't understand a Christian. And there is a distinguishing grace. There is a love that comes to you that sets you apart from everything around you. You belong to God. Israel had distinguishing grace. I mean, God says it over and over in Deuteronomy. You're not the best country. You're not the most moral country. You're not the strongest country. There's really not much about you to be impressed with. But you are the country. You are the the family of Abraham, and I chose you, and I have distinguished you. The way I'm treating you makes you stick out everywhere you go. You are being loved by God. Turn to Exodus 20. How does God want the believer to approach the Ten Commandments? And are we left to ourselves, or is there a really clear doorway that we have to pass through or we're sure to get it wrong. Exodus chapter 20 follows the rescue of Israel. Chapter 15 is the great song after the Egyptian army is drowned. Chapter 16, 17, 18, and 19, we find God is protecting Israel, which now hundreds of thousands of Jews are traveling through. a a wilderness area there's enemies there the amalekites god protects them against amalekites there is a lack of food god provides manna miraculously for 40 years there's a lack of water everywhere they go god provides enough water and then god calls moses onto the mountain mount sinai and he comes down in glory and it's a terrifying sight and moses meets with the living god And God explains to Moses how this group of people are going to walk with him. And he gives the Ten Commandments. Look at God's first line in the Ten Commandments. It's not actually a commandment. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then, only after that, are you allowed to know what path he wants you to walk? So again, if you skip the introduction, if you try to climb over the wall and you don't come through the doorway that God put there, the gate that he puts in front of his commands, then you are doomed to fail and to, and to try to use the Ten Commandments to make yourself a better person or make this a better church, and it will never work. The only person who can approach the Ten Commandments in the right way is the person that goes through Verse 2 is a person that can say, like Israel, I have been rescued from a house of slavery. And so I want to ask God, teach me, how do I live obediently? Well, of course, Israel, we remember the account, they were slaves in Egypt for about four centuries. They were living there, quickly, living there turns into slavery. The Egyptians hate the Jews. They make them slaves. The slavery is universal. It's not just some of the Jews, all the Jews are slaves. And so, if you're growing up, if you're one of the people that's about to hear the Ten Commandments, that means you grew up in slavery, and your parents grew up in slavery, and your grandparents grew up in slavery. They've been in slavery longer than the U.S. has been a nation. They don't know anything but slavery. And the slavery is not just on the outside. We see, sadly, in Exodus, it's on the inside. Four centuries of being surrounded by Egyptian idolatry. And it creeps in. It bleeds into the families. It bleeds into your religion. And when the Jews say to themselves here in Exodus, Moses went up on that mountain and he's been gone a long time. We... You know, maybe he's dead. We don't know if he's ever coming back. So we need to get on with our religion. Let's build a God that we can worship. One that we feel comfortable with. Let's build a golden calf. And that is, that's right in line with Egyptians. And God saves them from the spiritual and the physical slavery. He brings them out. He displays how great he is in the 10 plagues, showing that none of Egypt's gods is a God at all. And he destroys the pursuing army and they sing the song of victory, the song of Moses in Exodus 15. And then he calls Moses up and says, this is how they are to walk with me. Christian, when you read that, you immediately identify. It doesn't take anyone really to explain it. We were in a house of slavery. It wasn't for 400 years, but it's been since Adam and Eve disobeyed God. So how many centuries, how many millennia? I was born a slave. I lived a slave. My parents were slaves. My grandparents were slaves and their grandparents were slaves. And every nation that you know the name of was a nation of slaves. And every person you know in history, if you know their name, they were born slaves. But the distinguishing love of God rescued us And he did it in a way that humiliated the lies of the enemy. He tramples him publicly at the cross. He crushes the army of the enemy, so to speak. All the sins that cried out for our judgment have been dealt with, and the lies have been answered. And we have been brought from death to life. He protects us as we're journeying, He feeds us, He gives us water. And he sends us a path. I saved you from a slavery worse than Israel's. It wasn't just most of your life. I mean, physical slavery can only touch so many areas. You can't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week for your slave driver because then you're dead and he has to go get another slave. So just because of your limitations, slavery can only do so much to you. But that is not the way it was before you came to Christ. Sin made you its slave morning and night. Not once were you free from its lie and its threats, its fears. And Christ saves you. And now we come to the Ten Commandments that don't alter with the cross, and we say to God, okay, I've heard of these before, but now it's new. Teach me your statutes. We want to walk with you. We want to show you love in a way that pleases you. Does the New Testament bear that out, or is that just a picture? Well, think about it. The nature of salvation. If your idea of Christ's work for you and in you, only includes the one element of forgiveness, then once you're given forgiveness, it doesn't make sense to walk with God anymore after that. It doesn't make sense to pay attention to any commands or even to gather to worship him. All of that is just optional now. So maybe you want to. It doesn't make sense to guard your thoughts or your eyes or your tongue because you've been forgiven. And that's all that Christianity is, is forgiveness. But Christ says in John 17, in his great high priestly prayer, that he thanks the Father because he says he has sent him with authority to give eternal life. And then he describes eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so when you think about the nature of Christianity, it has to get much larger than just being forgiven. You've been brought to God to know him, to hold communion with a God, the only God, to enjoy him, to delight in who he is and to be taught and grown up by him. So obedience is not optional. How could I walk in a relationship with God, which is salvation? How could I have a a friendship with the king if I am continually telling the king that he's not the king? And I'm the king now because grace makes me a king. It's impossible to come to the commands of God and say, I'm actually not interested in any of those, but I'm really interested in you, God. The nature of salvation. Think about what the New Testament teaches about the dynamic of the gift, what he's done for you, and the love that results from that. And obedience. You know these verses, so I'm going to read through them. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But what did John say in his epistle? We love him because he first loved us. So it doesn't start with our love. He loves us through the work of his son. It's reaching us, capturing us, and constantly following me. New mercies every morning. And I love that God back. It may be very small compared to how he's loving me, but I love him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he says. Well, how does that work? John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 14, 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. 2 John chapter 6. It uh, doesn't have a chapter 6. 2 John verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. The love of Christ controls us or constrains us or another way of translating it, compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. There's this unbreakable link in the New Testament. It's really all we would need to know how should a Christian respond to the commands of God. We love the one who gave the command. So it's not a burden. We do it. And we don't do it when we don't love him. We're not talking about sinless perfection. There are, of course, sadly, there are variations in our love. Our love is, you know, like this and God's love is unchanging. But it doesn't change the fact that those who love him love to obey him. Why do you love him? Do you remember the account that I read at the beginning of the service? Pharisees have Jesus over. Let's have that famous preacher over. When Jesus comes over, a woman who lived a very immoral life. And everybody in the town knew her for that. She was distinguished by sin. She comes and she breaks the perfume. She pours it over his feet. She weeps on Christ's feet. She wipes his feet with her, uh, her hair. And of course, the Pharisee is offended. How could you let such a sinful person touch you? Now you're polluted. And Jesus explains things. And in the explanation, he mentions she loves much because she's forgiven don't misread that and tear it that verse out of the bible and make it say well since she loved me much then i decided to forgive her much it's obvious because he says those that are forgiven little love little she loves a lot that's the evidence the root she is forgiven and christ of course makes it clear to her you are forgiven The Pharisees were not men that only had a little to be forgiven of, so they didn't love Jesus very much. They were men that had an infinite guilt to be forgiven. They were just too blind to see it. But the woman whose life was distinguished by immorality knew it. And so when she knew that he came to save sinners, she loved him much. If you see that you have been forgiven of much... You love much and you want to obey. There's other things the New Testament teaches that make us want to say, God, teach me your commandments. Not just what God does for us, but what he does in us. Think of Romans 8, when he says that those who live according to the flesh, that is the old way of thinking, the old world's way of valuing things and choosing to do things, the fleshly way. This self-indulgent, self-impressed, unbelieving way of life that fits in with all the people around us, he says, when you live by the flesh, you cannot please God, and your mind is hostile to His Word. But when God works in us in the New Covenant, When God saves, that new birth takes you from Romans 8. You are hostile toward God and hostile toward his word. It's impossible that your brain would bow to your Bible. Then Jeremiah 31, this covenant, which I will make the new covenant. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people. And the new birth does that. But John explains it, doesn't he? Listen to 1 John 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So that that isn't fully visible. And then he says, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, God, is pure. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness, you know, living as if there is no rule above your present desires. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. But by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. So John writes and basically you could boil it down to this. When God works in a soul and makes you his child and gives you a new nature, one of the things that be, that becomes apparent in this new nature is you love him and your love for your new father and your brothers and sisters, that love makes you want to obey him. So if you're okay to be a church member and say to God, but I don't think that Following Jesus involves obeying. Then you are self-deceived and not a child of God. But if you come and you say, I want to obey and I grieve where I, those times I disobey God and I see them and they seem so frequent. But God, there's something different in me now. Sin that once was my dearest treasure has now become my greatest grief. God When I see these things that you've done for me and in me, I'm asking you, teach me your commandments. Whether you look at verse 2 of Exodus 20, where God builds the only doorway into those that you should go through, you were a slave, I saved you. Or whether you look at the New Testament, where that little phrase is spelled out, Page after page, too much for us to look at in one sitting. And as the forgiven, filthy person who was distinguished by selfishness, being forgiven, you come to him. We don't need to break perfume bottles anymore or weep and wipe his feet with our hair. We would. But now we come to him and say, Because you are mine and I am yours, teach me your commandments. Our everlasting and holy God, whether it is because you are good and you do good or that you are the blessed one who kindly makes others happy. Or whether it's because we look at creation and we see that you're keeping your word and it's full of of a contractual, promised love and mercy, or whether it's because we walk up to these commands and look at the map of Christ and we realize we, too, were once slaves, but no more. God, we pray, give us hearts and lives that could be called doers of the word, not just people who appreciate them at the distance. So help us, God, to walk with you. We need you and we have you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.